the contagious Jesus. You know, I don't know whether I still have them or whether I gave them away. It's been so long. At, well, it was back in elementary school, and I, I don't remember. I'm talking about the cooties. <laughs> now, I've been assured that this pathogen is still around, maybe by some other names. I remember it. On the playground, you could touch somebody, and so you've got the cooties. <laughs> Cafeteria line, you could do it. The best place to do it was in class. Because there you could touch somebody in front of you and they couldn't turn around and touch you back. You've got the cooties. We spent a lot of time worrying about the cooties. Remember 2008, the swine flu epidemic that wasn't? <laughs> the government said, wash your hands as long as it takes to sing happy birthday or twinkle, twinkle, little star. I'm very literal. I was doing that out loud in public till my wife told me to stop and said... <laughs> A billion dollars a year spent on antibacterial soap. Even though the feds have been challenged whether it does any good, the cooties can be expensive. And you never know where they're lurking. That menu in the restaurant, if somebody sneezed on it, they live there for 18 hours. Oh, the lemon wedge in your iced tea? The Journal for Environmental Health says 70% of them have cooties. I'll take mine without lemon, please. I, I was feeling pretty safe from all this until I read that one of the most unsanitary places on the planet is the seat back pocket in the airliner right in front of you, and that's because I usually put my half-eaten sandwich or candy bar in there. Cooties everywhere. You know that little invisible pathogen must be some kind of archetype in our mind because it has such longevity. <laughs> we worry about that sort. And here we meet in all the synoptics. This man who had something far worse than that, the most feared of pathogens. Matthew tells us that it was right after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount when he was coming down and everybody was saying, oh, did you ever hear a young preacher preach like that? What authority? When this man, full of leprosy, Luke says, approached him. Dr. Garland's commentary on Luke, he says it might be any one of 72 different skin conditions. No one knows for sure, but for sure it wasn't a good thing to walk into the midst of. Mark gives the fullest account of this, emphasizing the compassion of Jesus. Puts it right on the front porch of his gospel. But we'll look at this with Luke today. who says this man was full of leprosy. The disease was not prefatory. It was not ingressive. It had taken this man. I've come in recent years to be interested in those people who got into the Bible without a name. They're incognito, nameless. If you carefully read Luke's gospel up to this point, 24 of 25 individuals introduced have a name. The only other one who doesn't get a name is that Gerasene. <laughs> this man doesn't get a name. He's simply the man full of leprosy, robbed of any identity, except not what was the 
best thing about him, but the worst thing. Not the highest moment of his life, but the lowest moment of his life. Labeled and dispatched with it, it's like Hawthorne's, you were made to read it, scarlet letter. <laughs> Hester Prynne there with that A because of the affair with Dimsdale, marginalized and robbed of all identity. This man wore the L, <laughs> leper. I don't have to tell the seminary crowd what that meant. Behind a screen at the synagogue, if you went into your house, you had to have the whole public health organization come over and scrub the thing down. Leper. Do we really help people when we know them by the weakest thing that happened to them? He's an addict, prostitute, name it. I was in a car the other day where they had on focus on the family. And I'm not to confess, I'm not a big listener to focus on the family for several reasons. The guest focus on the family, though, was the fundamentalist radio Bible teacher, John MacArthur, Jr. Uh, and I don't always listen to John, but I said, this will be interesting to hear what he said, because that was the epicenter of the culture wars, and I was ready for John to throw some flames. But you know what he said? I was arrested. In a soft voice, he said, the culture wars have made the mission field the enemy, and they see us as the enemy because we have labeled people and think we've dispatched with them. Oh, name it. And then he went on to say, if we would drown them in the love of Jesus in a Christian community, we might see some change. This man's in the New Testament, not because he was the man full of leprosy, but because one day he, he, took, his, he took his driver's license into the Galilee License Bureau, and it had L on it. didn't mean learner, it meant leper. <laughs> and they stamped it C, cleansed. And he's here because that's his identity. But you know, that didn't happen to him because of a casual thing happening. You know, Luke emphasizes up front. He fell on his knees. Do you ever get tickled about what makes people intense? I do. I was out the other day with somebody I thought I knew very well. We were around a famous person, and this individual decided had to have the autograph right now. Climbed over all of us. I was astonished. Got to get a group come into town, band, camp out all night, get the ticket. You could sing all of their songs backwards, get them out of the cloud, but got to get that ticket. Friday after Thanksgiving, don't even mention it. Lined up around Walmart. Circle. Man trampled to death last year as people. Intense. <laughs> Heard about somebody I casually knew out in Las Vegas. What happened there didn't stay there. <laughs> Lost all his money. Thought he'd memorized the rules for blackjack. Knew he had a 2% chance of winning. Lost all but $20. Put it on his birthday on the roulette wheel. I bet he was talking to Jesus before he got home. Intense. It's interesting how we seem to divorce that kind of intensity so often from what Jesus does. This man came and disregarding the crowd's attitude toward him, disregarding the fact that he was more than a pariah, fell on his knees and kept on begging Jesus that he might be made I think it was Søren Kierkegaard who said, when you read the Bible, you ought to read it on tiptoe. 
One of the many dangers that can lurk around the hallways of a place like this is that this becomes a casual thing when in fact his power yielded to those who came with some intensity, tearing off roof, roof grabbing for that crespidon of his garment, intense. Maybe that's why it says, seeing Jesus he came. Now, that's a, almost a, seeing him, everybody was looking at him. He'd just given the Sermon on the Mount. Thousands of people looking. In fact, I expect he was the most looked at person in Galilee. In fact, could I nominate him for the most looked at person in history? If you added up all of the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and icons and Roman Catholic crucifixes and paintings of Jesus on the walls of Protestant Sunday school rooms and Bible, he'd got to be the most looked at person in history. But not everybody looking is seeing. Now, I don't know all the distinctions that are made. You can read about different Greek words for seeing and perception and understanding. And some say they're different. Some say they're the same. But I do know the Lord said, unless some kind of life comes to you from above, you can't see what Jesus is about. You see it with the eyes of the heart. What did he say to those first followers? Come and see. You know, there's a difference in looking and seeing. I was trying to do a little work on this text, and uh, my my schnoodle, Phoebe, was looking up at me, a combination of a schnauzer and a poodle. Now, I don't think Phoebe was looking at me saying, well, look, there's Joel parsing a verb from Luke chapter 5. No, looking but not seeing. The upside and the downside of the place where we live and study and work right here is that just to name things is not to know them. And just to look is not to see. We can bandy about these words of soteriology and atonement and other ologies and name them and that's good. But I can also go out in the field outside of St. Louis and see a cardinal and say, oh, that's a cardinal, and I think I know something because I can name the bird. No, I don't really know anything other than naming it. Part of the risk is that we think looking could be seeing. Perhaps this man really saw. And when he saw, he kept on begging. It's one of Luke's favorite words. It's a little word that becomes robust, technicolor, when you see where it pops up in Luke. It's an intense asking for (laughs) that demon inside the garrison. It's what he did. Same word. Beg Jesus. Don't, 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 don't send me back. (laughs) I expect that was intense. That father whose little boy threw himself into the fire and the water and convulsed till he was rigid and foaming at the mouth. He begged Jesus like that. Somehow to get connected with the kind of thing Jesus does requires what that word is about. I wander back through my life and ask myself, when did I ever get that way? (laughs) A good while back, I was an instructor at another seminary. 
phone rang and little home I picked it up and I couldn't believe the voice that was on the end probably the most famous Baptist preacher saying our people want you to come preach on Sunday night will you come over here I couldn't believe it I said is this really you so I studied myself silly Monday Tuesday Wednesday got to get ready Thursday eight-year-old son was riding a by a borrowed bicycle didn't know how to use the brakes was hit by a car slammed his little head against a curb like an eggshell he seemed struck took him to the children's hospital watch him next day sleepier sitting up staring at took him back more active watch him Saturday looking almost catatonic something really wrong took him back you really need to watch Sunday afternoon frantically back to the hospital Finally, a pediatric neurosurgeon said he has an epidural hematoma. We've got to operate. And I said, oh, uh, I, we have to have a second opinion. He said, no, if we don't do it now, he'll die. Do you know it's interesting how quickly you can be put in a position where you want to talk to Jesus, just like the father of that boy at the foot of the mountain or just like this man? I didn't care. I was down in the basement of Harris Hospital. Our family fell on our knees. We didn't care. Oh, I called that preacher and said, sorry, I'll catch you later. Can't come tonight. <laughs> you see, it evacuated everything else. There's something about the casual that doesn't touch what Jesus can do if you take the Gospels seriously. But then, then there comes this moment. I, I don't know what, I call it a, an, 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 a, a halfway right question. The synoptics all have it. It's pathetic. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That's a question from someone who's been hurt and marginalized and disappointed a lot of times. He recognized the power of Jesus. You're able but he didn't think he was good enough to do it for him. That's kind of the crux of the matter, isn't it? I know you've been doing this all around Galilee for folks, but not like me. Able, but not willing. Don't we live at that intersection sometimes? You know, sometimes I think when I preach, I love to preach gospel stories. So many people don't know them anymore. I love to preach them. It's introducing them. But you know, sometimes I feel in churches that we're getting together to have a memorial service on Sunday for what Jesus used to do. Let's look back to the... Wasn't it nice back there when he did stuff like that? Or we consign it to super saints. You know, uh, maybe Madame Guyana, or Teresa or, or Desmond Tutu or somebody. They, but that, me, he was able and willing or maybe some relative back there that used to sing gospel songs in the kitchen and seemed like Jesus was right there by the stove. But me? Part of the power of Jesus is my belief that for me, he is both willing and able. Greg Boyd, professor, Bible church uh, preacher, wrote a little book last year called Believing is Seeing, and it, it had his therapy of prayer and his therapy of prayer was 
you imagine Jesus coming into your situation. I wonder what we could write over that great word, I am willing. <laughs> then the audible gas moment. You know what an audible gas moment is. Here's it, you go to the circus, if you still ever go to that. Here's a tightrope walker, falls off, everybody goes, <gasps> even though they know there's a net down there, still go, <gasps> go to YouTube, little boy, 2009, falls into the gorilla cage. It's awful. Concussion, parents frantic, gorillas looking, <gasps> out in West Texas, a little running back, hit. Smashed by a linebacker, crumples like Kleenex on the brown grass of autumn. Everybody goes, <gasps> it was like that. Jesus said that. He reached out and touched him. And it was, <gasps> I can imagine what they were thinking in that crowd down there at the bottom of the mount. Here's this wonderful young preacher. Seemed like he had such a future. Now he's gone giving himself leprosy. <gasps> No, they missed something. You see, if you come to Jesus with greed, and I mean really hang with him, read his word, talk to him, funny thing happens to greed. You don't make him the greedy Jesus. It relaxes the hand of greed. You come to him with an addiction. Care what it is. Could be anything. Internet pornography at midnight, gambling, substance, it's interesting. If you get around him, you don't make him the addicted Jesus. <laughs> the strange thing is, Jesus is more contagious <laughs> than anything he touches. His touch gives you the case of what he has. Now, this has a lot to do with ministry, whether you see it as defensive or offensive, whether you've got to protect Jesus from the world where you minister or whether you have absolute confidence that he can give what he has to whoever he touches, beginning with you. Analia Buter gave birth April the 11th in northeastern Argentina to a three-month premature baby the size of a palm, one pound, 12 ounces. Gynecologist examined it, neonatologist examined it, five doctors examined it, and nurses. They didn't even give a birth certificate. They gave a death certificate and took that tiny little baby down to the basement of the hospital. Analia had had four children, but for some reason this time they'd given her a general anesthesia and she didn't wake up for hours. Ten hours after that baby was born, she begged her husband, she wanted to take an iPhone and take a picture of the little baby. They had to cajole the hospital into letting them go to the basement morgue. 
where they'd put the baby in a little coffin, nailed it shut, and put it in a refrigerator. Her husband, Fabian Verone, took a little crowbar, <laughs> took the lid off that little casket, pulled back a coverlet to take the picture, and Analia, as surely any mother would do, reached out to touch it, and when she touched it, the baby stretched and let out a little cry. <laughs> the baby was a lie. Her brother-in-law took it and ran to the neonatal unit. Is the baby perfect to date? No, couldn't be with that sort of thing. But the baby's alive. When I read that kind of trope, I, I have to take that which is lower and lesser and lighter. If Eugene Peterson is right, all of nature illustrates all of grace. <laughs> if on a lower, lesser, lighter level, touch of a mother can call life out of someone who'd been nailed shut and about to be forgotten. How much on a higher, holier, heavier level can the touch of the Lord give what he's got to those who've been nailed shut, dismissed, and forgotten? If he could do it at arm's length, in Galilee. Don't you think that one who is called our great high priest, who has passed through the heavens to another dimension, is still able to reach through that dimension, able to sympathize with us in our very real weaknesses, and able to give grace to help just when we need it. He's still the contagious Jesus.